Welcome to the Front Lines of Freedom and thank you so much for joining us again for yet another episode. I'm Ivan Mawarire, the Director of Education at the Renew Democracy Initiative. I remember my days fondly of protesting and leading protests in Zimbabwe. And I also remember how we ended up in prison, how we were tortured, how we were beaten and how we were threatened. And it's part of the price that you pay when you decide that you will stand up for justice, for freedom, democracy, and for what is right. Along the way, I have met some amazing people. A couple of months ago, I spoke to a man called Leopoldo Lopez, and he told us an incredible story of Venezuela and the work that he and his friends did in Venezuela as the mayor of one of the main municipalities there. I happened to meet another one of his friends, almost quite by accident. And he too was one of the mayors of one of the main municipalities of Caracas in Venezuela. His name is David Smolansky. And at first when we had the conversation, I didn't think there was much to what David was saying until he began to open up. Not only did I realize that there was an incredible story of resilience, of passion for freedom and justice, but that this man was very much like myself. In fact, I said this to him when we spoke. I said, David, I feel like you are my twin in so many of the things that he said. And you will hear this story. It'll fascinate you. It'll break your heart, but it'll also inspire you as you hear what this man has done together with many, many unnamed people who have walked the path that he has walked and yet he carries on. David Smolansky, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today, right here on the front lines of freedom. I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about how you started. How did you end up becoming a politician? Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. First of all, I think since I was, I don't know, a teenager, I always want to be a public servant. I always want to be in politics and I always want to be someone that could contribute to change the situation that my country is facing. It was very common in my house that after dinner, after lunch, we discussed about the challenges that Venezuela were having. We discussed things that the world were facing. Actually, I have probably two episodes in my life that really encouraged me to be more and more involved in politics, not only nationally, but also be someone who can think globally. Mm. First of all, I coincidence, I was in New York on 9-11. Mm. This is something I have not said that much publicly. And I was only 16 years old. And when I saw New York attacked and I had to stay a week more in that city, it really encouraged me to study what, what, what was going on in the world. Why is that happening? And then the year after, in 2002, only also with 16 years old, I was part of the huge protest in Venezuela. Mm. The, probably the biggest protest I've ever been in my life. More than one million people went to the streets non-violent to ask Hugo Chavez to resign. And he resigned. Wow. He resigned. But because things were handled very bad, 48 mm. hours after, he came back to power. Mm. Mm. So those two very striking episodes that I had in my life with 16 years old, and as I said, the background of my family discussing always 
you know, things that were going on in the country and globally, you know, encouraged me to be involved in politics, to be an agent of change and to become a public servant. And then I, when I was a student in 2007, specifically the oldest TV station in Venezuela, I was a student of journalism, the, the oldest TV station in Venezuela was shut down by the regime. And in that moment, the students led uh, plenty of nonviolent protests with tens of thousands of people on the streets. And that became something, you know, nationally well known. And then when I said that I officially started my public career, that's when I officially the times were accelerated to be involved in the public service. You then eventually, over a series of events, become the contestant for the mayor of one of the municipalities in the city of Caracas, El Atilo. And you become the mayor of that. Tell us about what you found. What was the state of the city? What was service delivery like? Well, first of all, it was something very unique to be elected mayor because I was 28. We became the youngest local administration in Venezuela. And we had so many challenges. The most important one was security. El Atillo was the municipality with the highest kidnapping rate per capita in Venezuela and one of the highest in Latin America. I started in 2014 and in 2013, 94 kidnappings occurred in El Atillo. That's two per week. So that's one every three days, every four days. My goodness. So we had that challenge of insecurity. We had a challenge of so many administration before us that were very corrupt. Also, we had challenges of lack of public services of water, electricity, and the disconnection, the, the disconnection between the authorities and the people. I think our neighbors didn't feel completely represented on the local government. So we changed that. We changed that drastically. We were able to reduce kidnapping 84%. I was very grateful with all my police and the culture that we changed inside the police. That It was not easy, by the way. We have to get rid of 35% of our police officers that we found that were involved on different crimes. But, you know, doing those reforms internally helped us to decrease kidnapping 84%, to be recognized by international transparency as one of the top three most transparent local governments in Venezuela. And at the same time, we connected our citizens with the local government. So we were not far from them. And mm. one of the things mm. that we started to do were town halls. Every week, at least two or three town halls with our neighbors, we launched what we call the participatory budget, where at least 5% of the budget were plans, programs, proposals that came from our neighbors. Mm. So they really felt uh, represented on our local government. And it became a local administration that it was not only recognized in the capital, was, was, it was also recognized nationally. So you became quite a popular mayor because of the successes and the, the things that you were able to bring to the city, right? Well, I don't feel comfortable to say that thing about me, but we had approximately 75% of approval. But at the same time, it's important to say that I was a mayor under a dictatorship. So mm -hmm. I was not only, you know, comfortable or happy or pleasant, or having a good local administration, even though all the challenges that we faced. Just to put you an example, we had problems with water and electricity. That was something that was not responsibility of the mayor. That mm -hmm. was a responsibility of the national authorities. Of course, mm -hmm. the regime never do anything 
to try to improve the service of water and electricity in Gratillo. So that made things more complicated. But having said that, I wanted to express that I was not happy having those good numbers because during those years, I witnessed great leaders like Leopoldo Lopez, who was illegally detained. I mm. witnessed other six mayors that were illegally detained. Other mm. five were illegally removed from office. Thousands of students were illegally detained, were wounded in protests. Hundreds were killed. So I was a mayor that I couldn't stay quiet on the situation that was going on in Venezuela. So I always was outspoken against human rights violation. I always was outspoken against the complex humanitarian emergency that Venezuela started to suffer in those years. I always was against the attack that the free press suffered on those years. And of course, well, for the regime, that was uncomfortable, having a young mayor with a good local administration, but at the same time defiant with the national issues, they started to threatened me and persecuted me systematically for no less than three years. You make such a strong point that sometimes people forget that this was a dictatorship in which you were under. You are an elected mayor, you are popular, you have a high approval rate, but it's under a dictatorship and that's not easy. There came a moment where an event happened that is known as the 100 days of protest. Tell us about how that came about and what was that for? So in 2017, for 100 consecutive days, everything started on March 31st, and it went all along until August. So we went to the streets asking for humanitarian assistance for Venezuela, asking for the release of political prisoners, asking for free and fair elections, asking also for respect the majority of the Congress at that moment was a majority of the opposition. So we were on the streets like never before. So only as compared with that huge rally that I told you in 2002. But that was only one day. It was huge, one million people. It was one day. This was 100 consecutive days that there were days that probably 500,000 people, 300,000 people went to the streets. Mm. So the regime really felt the pressure and they decided to repress brutally. They decided to, to kill us, literally and to illegally detain and to hurt so many people. There were very difficult moments. But I know that I was doing the right thing. I know mm. I was doing the right, right thing. I was one of the leaders that called for the protests, probably the mayor that was most outspoken during those nonviolent protests. We only had one small hospital, and that hospital was always with the door open for any protester that was wounded. It mm. was assisted on that on that hospital. So, of course, the regime didn't like to have a mayor, you know, calling for nonviolent protests, involved on those protests. One of the most difficult things that I have ever faced in my life was that, so one of the biggest cemeteries of Venezuela is located in El Atillo. And I had to visit for five consecutive weeks that cemetery to bury young, innocent Venezuelans that were killed by the dictatorship. All of them are buried together, and it was devastating. I was shattered in that moment. I never, ever imagined in my life to visit for five consecutive weeks a cemetery to bury innocent people. And that was the worst phase of the dictatorship. Uh, you know, the message that the dictatorship was sending is that we will not step back. We will not negotiate anything. 
And if we have to kill you to keep in power, we will kill you. I have to ask you, David, as a political leader, as a mayor, as a young person, and you're burying these young people in the cemetery, how does that make you feel? Did you at any point look and just shake your head and think, is this worth it? Have I caused the death of young people? I'm trying to figure out what's going on in your mind during these moments. It was devastating. I remember that when the second student was killed, the manager of the cemetery called me. As I told you, that cemetery was located in El Atillo. And he asked me, Mayor, I don't want this happen again, but if more students are killed, where will we bury them? And I told him, hopefully we will not have more students killed, but at the same time we are protesting every single day, and it's a probability that anything could happen, even I could get killed mm. or anyone else. So the only thing that I will ask you to do if there's more students killed, please bury them all together. Because one day Venezuela will have democracy, will have freedom, and we will recognize these students together. Mm, mm. All the time you see monuments of the soldier, but this is the monument of civilians. So that was it. I can see how tough that would be. Your story continues and the protests eventually lead to the government seeking to arrest you. And they had been after you for many years prior to that. But on a particular day, one of uh, your lawyers calls you up to go to the Facebook page of the Supreme Court of Venezuela. What do you see on that Facebook page? On the Facebook page of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, it is not independent. It is completely controlled by the regime. It's one of the most uh, important pillars of the regime. Said that I have a, a citation to go. They only gave me 36 hours. I remember that I read that on August 7 of 2017 in the afternoon, and I have to be in August 9 in the morning. And they wanted you to report to the Supreme Court. Exactly. They want me to be there. And I knew that if I went there, I would be illegally detained. Mm -hmm. Or if I was not illegally detained, I was recognizing an institution that was illegitimate and is still illegitimate. So I said, I'm not going to a place where, first of all, we do not recognize it is illegitimate. And second, I could be illegally detained. That's when my hiding started. I had 36 hours to say goodbye to my family. I had to meet with my cabinet and tell them that I was proud of them, that I was grateful, that I, I, I was blessed to have them as a team, and I encourage them to keep the work if I'm not able to stay. I organized a huge meeting with hundreds of public servants of El Atillo that all of them were, you know, were shocked, were sad, were, they didn't know what to happen, but I just told them that we need to keep working, that institutions are above people, and the institution that we have built in El Atillo needs to strengthen and needs to be a democratic place of resistance. And then I had a huge town hall, a town hall that we only had like 12 hours or less to call the people to go. And, you know, in a place where it was a capacity of 800 people, 1,500 people went there. Essentially, this is a warrant out for your arrest. 
And instead of handing yourself in, you go to have meetings with public servants, with people in your team, you call a town hall. Why are you doing this? What's driving you to do this instead? Well, many things. First of all, to defend democracy until the end. Second, even though the regime was going after me, I had a team. I had a great team that was also on the risk. Many members of the cabinet during those days were threatened, were persecuted. The chief of security was kidnapped for 12 hours, asking him information about me. My team needed to saw me, to tell them that, you know, if I'm not here anymore, you have to continue. You have to continue because we have built something really special here. We mm. have built something really important here. And we are the light of democracy for so many people, not only in Atillo or Caracas, but in, in Venezuela. And of course, I had to meet also with my neighbors because they elected me. And it was a coup d'etat, basically. What happened in a local level was a coup d'etat, what they did. They just didn't use the weapons, the munitions that soldiers used, but they used the Supreme Court to remove me legally from office. So for the people who democratically elected me in 2013, I just needed to speak to them and to tell them that we have to keep the fight, that even though if I'm not there, we have to keep the fight. And uh, that is why I did it. It was also a way to define the regime until the very last minute. And I'm proud that I did that. I'm really proud that I did that. I don't want to sound show off, but I am proud that I did that. And not only me, but my team, the public servants of the local government and the citizens of Elatillo were really brave during those days. Really, really brave. You know, I love those words that you just used to defend democracy until the last, until the very last. And, you know, I think that speaks volumes of your mindset and, you know, what you've committed yourself to. But I think there's a very interesting aspect of your life that I would like to bring in here, which is your family history of protest or your family history of dissenters. So you are Venezuelan, but Smolansky is essentially a Ukrainian name. Yes. How does that come about? What's the history of the Smolanskis with dissent and protest and just being people that don't take it lying down? Well, my great-grandfather was illegally detained by the Soviets in the 1920s. He had a lumber mill, and that lumber mill was uh, expropriated. And he was illegally detained. When he was released, he was uh, very ill and he died. Mm -hmm. So he was the father of my grandmother who was born in a tiny town. Its name is Kovel. In that moment, that was part of Poland. But after the Soviet Union collapsed, now it's part of Ukraine. So as a child, my grandmom fled the Soviet Union and went to Cuba. But my grandfather, at the same time, he was a teenager, was born in Kiev. And because of the Soviet regime, he had also to flee the country. And he went to Cuba as well. So they met in Cuba. My father was born in Cuba. And then the Castro regime came to Cuba. And as it happened to my great-grandfather, my grandfather he had a textile industry that was expropriated by the Cuban regime. So they suffered other, other dictatorship and they had to flee Cuba in the 1970s, 1970, and went to Venezuela. So my grandparents died in Venezuela when he was literally a child, he was three years old. So they died in Venezuela, they were buried in Venezuela. 
Mm. And then, well, in 2017, I had to flee Venezuela. So three generations mm. in three different mm. countries in a hundred years, victims of the same type of regime that mm. goes against private property, that goes against free press, that go against anyone who thinks uh, differently. So it's been sometimes surreal, surreal to think that we have gone through as a family. But at the same time, that story of my father and my grandparents also inspired me to be involved in politics and, and to become a public servant. David, that is such a, such a powerful legacy and one to be proud of and one that I'm, I'm honored to have known that you carried that on as well. But now you are a wanted man in Venezuela. The Supreme Court wants you. You know that they're going to arrest you. They are kicking you out of office. They have banned you from traveling. And you decide to go into hiding. And you are in hiding for 35 days. Tell me about that time. How did you cope in hiding? I think I was prepared. When I was asked to go to the Supreme Court to that Facebook page, the first message that I gave to the country is that my number came up, right? It is my turn. Because in a dictatorship, when there's no democracy, everyone has a number. It only changes when it will come up. But everyone has a number. So I was prepared, to be honest, that that moment will come because, as I told you earlier, Many of my colleagues that were also mayors were illegally detained or were forced to flee the country. Other leaders were illegally detained as well. The students were killed. So something that they didn't tell you that uh, it was very common since Leopoldo Lopez was uh, illegally detained 2014. That it was, he didn't even have a hundred days as a mayor when Leopoldo Lopez was illegally detained. Every interview that I went, every journalist asked me, are you going to the jail like Leopoldo? Will you end in jail like Leopoldo? Are you afraid to be illegally detained like it happened to Leopoldo? So it was something all the time around my life during those years. And I had just a backpack with a few clothes, a tablet, my passport that I was able to hide. And I changed the hours of sleep. I always stayed awake until 5, 6 a.m. because I always thought that the regime could go after me or could illegally detain me during nights if they find where I was. Mm-hmm. And I tried to sleep four or five hours during the morning. Then I had a routine writing, reading, praying. Uh, in a place where I have a little bit more space, I was able to do some exercise. I had a small TV where I was able to watch the news. I also, I am a sports fan, and I was able sometimes to watch a baseball game or a soccer game or, and, and get some distraction. And well, that's how I was able to be in hiding. I was prepared to be for a month, to be honest with you. I was prepared to be for a month. I could have been four, five, six months. But then there was a a decision, a silly decision, a ridiculous decision, I have to say, from the opposition calling for elections for governor and mayors. And I said, what the hell these guys are doing? Mm. I mean, they haven't seen that 12 mayors have been illegally removed. Six of them are in jail. I am in hiding. We have been protesting for 100 consecutive days where almost 200 students were killed, thousands were wounded. What are you doing? And from hiding, I posted a statement that I write by hand saying, elections in dictatorship. So it was very critical. Even from mm-hmm. my own political party, it was very critical. And I was, in that moment, you know, 
very angry and disappointed and in a huge disagreement mm. on that decision. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be more useful to my people. I'm going to be more useful to my country in exile than in hiding or in a jail. And then it's when I started to plan the route to flee Venezuela. It must be something to feel like you have been betrayed. And I don't know if that was the sense at that time when uh, your friends decided that they would you know, do elections in a dictatorship. But I am taken by the fact that you made a decision that I'm still going to be useful and I'm going to do that in exile. And that means that now you had to escape Venezuela. How did that happen? What was that plan? So my first plan was to flee Venezuela through a boat that could get me to the uh, Caribbean island. But Maduro knew that I was in hiding and he prohibited the sailing of any boat. And actually, two people that were very brave, willing to risk literally their life to take me on the small boats to a Caribbean island, they just tried to see if the order Maduro gave was, you know, being executed properly. And when they just uh, made a trial, they were told by the National Coast Guard, go back. Mm. So they told me this is not possible. By the way, all the time I was using encrypted apps. This is something that I have to say. I didn't use WhatsApp or, of course, any phone calls. I changed phones. I was through encrypted app all mm. the time. Mm -hmm. So that really was useful for the regime not to find. So then the other option was flee through Colombia, border with Venezuela. But so many people go through that border every day. And there's a lot of national guards and police, and you know. So I decided to go through Brazil. It was the longest route, which makes highly risky, but the most surprising one, because no one didn't use it by the moment. So I always have a beard. I shave my beard. I wore glasses. I wore a flat hat and I wore a cloth. Like so I disguised as a seminarist, almost mm. like a priest. Like a priest. With rosaries, with a Bible. And I started my journey. My journey that were 1,300 kilometers, 35 checkpoints, eight of them, the car was asked to stop. And in four out of those four, I was asked to get out of the car, but they didn't recognize me and I was able to flee Venezuela. You know what's interesting about this very mode of escape is that it was almost detail for detail the opposite of how I escaped from Zimbabwe because I was a pastor. I was a priest. Wow. And wow. so when I was escaping, I was trying my best not to be a priest. priest. So, <laughs> so I went putting on my normal civilian clothing and tried my best to behave as just an ordinary person. But here you are. You had a very interesting moment that... I had to marvel at one of the officers asked for your ID and something happened in that moment when the officer realized that you were from Caracas and you were far away. Tell us about what happened there. Yeah, many things. When you told me about this interview, I, I was thinking, you know, because it's been five years exactly since that moment happened. It was between August, September of 2017. I remember, I will tell you about the ID, but let me just give you this anecdote as well. It is a long, long, long trip 
there is a part that you go through one of the most beautiful landscape, not only in Venezuela, but I can tell you in the world. Its name in Spanish is La Gran Sabana. It's something amazing. It's just people say that the world started there, literally. It's, it's a paradise. It's not far from the biggest fall of the world, the angels fall. So it's something beautiful. And I remember that we found a small place to eat where there was a restaurant. I, I was not hungry. It was not, but, <laughs> and when I get out of the car and I'm going to the restroom, a mom with her daughter saw me and the daughter said to his, her mom, Hey mom, look at the father. He's a priest here. He's going to the restroom like us. <laughs> and I just, just, you know, I just walk, but so many stories that I just going to my mind. But on the next to last security checkpoint, there was a soldier from the National Guard, very young, no more than 21, 22 years old, that he asked me for the ID. Mm-hmm. And I showed the ID. And he then asked me, Father, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm going to a community that I was invited mm-hmm. with kids that they invited me for a assistance program. Mm-hmm. But where are you from? Because I haven't seen you here. And I say, no, I'm coming from Caracas. And why so far from Caracas? And I say, mm. well, I was invited. Which um, parish from Caracas? And I remember I say St. Peter's Parish, I had to say. St. Peter's <laughs> Parish. And he was very, you know, skeptical. He was doing his job. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw his last name. And I, you know, remember as a major that I always called my officer for his last name. Mm-hmm. Also, he and had a tag on his he uniform. Had a tag, he, he had a tag in the uniform. It says Rodriguez, a typical uh, last name, a Hispanic last name, Rodriguez. And I said, Rodriguez. And he said, yes. And I gave him a rosary. God bless you. <laughs> he was, wow, Father, but why are you, you, you shouldn't do this. God bless you. God bless you, son. <laughs> and he was, please, go ahead. <laughs> and he let you through. Yeah, he let me through. He let me through after the rosaries, you know. Oh, man. And, uh, <laughs> and then I have to say, there were moments that I was alone, and there was moments that I was with two people in the car. In that moment, it was with two people in the car. When the two people, after I fled Venezuela, were coming back, <laughs> they were, there was this, this, this same soldier at the same mm-hmm. security checkpoint, and the soldier recognized these two people that were with oh. me and the car, of course, and they were about to stop and they say, Hey, Rodriguez, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> and of course they thought that, you know, anything could happen to them because I was already on my journey to Brazil. Mm. And of course I knew about this story after fleeing Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And, and they said, no, where is the father? Where is the priest? I just want to say, thank you. The rosary is beautiful. I just prayed with that rosary the same night that he gave it to me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, you know, it's part of the anecdote. Of course. I mean, you know, these stories of our escapes and the things that we had to do, I, I know that they're stories that we hold close to ourselves. And when we think of them, we're thankful that we escaped with our lives. You've committed yourself to helping Venezuela and Venezuelans now. It's been five years since you've left. What have you begun to do? Or maybe actually there was something you saw on your escape that prompted you to do what you now do. What was that? 
Yeah, so basically when I fled Venezuela and I was able to get to the biggest city that Brazil has near Venezuela, its name is Boavista, and I went to the airport because I was planning to get to Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, to make public my exile on the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. When I got to the airport, I saw images that shocked my mind. I saw Venezuelans that were fleeing like me. Uh, I had a voice and, and my case was known because I was a public person, but I saw a young lady buying a flight ticket to Argentina and I heard her when I, she said, I'm not going back. I have to flee. I don't have the opportunities to study. I saw an old woman selling candies outside the airport. I saw an old man selling cigarettes outside the airport and I saw a huge family sleeping on the floor waiting for an opportunity to get a flight ticket to other city of Brazil or the country in South America. When I saw that, by the way, and that moment I still was dressed as a priest. Mm. So I took the plane as a priest, by the way. When I saw that, I thought, who is taking care of it, of this? Who, who is, who is promoting policy? Who is raising awareness on this? And since my exile started, I had a, a goal in my mind that I wanted to work for Venezuelans who have fled, mm. for people who are victims of the dictatorship like me and to give them a voice, to give them a voice. And that's what I have been doing. I'm working in a regional body. Its name is the Organization of American States, mm -hmm. the most important regional body of the Americas. And the secretary and the special envoy of the Secretary General to address the Venezuela migration and refugee crisis. So I have uh, visited 11 countries. We have made 15 reports with 700 testimonies of Venezuelans who have fled the country uh, with recommendations of policies that have been implemented in Colombia, in the U.S. TPS, in Colombia, in the U.S. TPS, in Brazil, Cartagena Declaration, with policy promoting actions against xenophobia and discrimination and raising awareness of why people are fleeing. This mm. is something that and Venezuela has not been through an invasion. We have not been through a conventional war or natural catastrophe, but the consequences are similar. But we need to explain that in detail. So that's uh, part of the job that I've been doing and with the motivation that one day, not only me, but six million of Venezuela will have the opportunity to go back and enjoy a nation with freedom, with democracy, with rule of law, with opportunity, but especially with our loved ones, because our loved ones are still in Venezuela. Our loved ones are still suffering in Venezuela. We don't have a special dates with our loved ones like a birthday or like Christmas or like New Year's Eve. Those are moments that we are not celebrating with our loved ones. We are just in distance in a camera in, in the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. So I want Venezuelans to have the opportunity to go back and reunion with their families. That's my motivation every single day. And my friend, that has to be the most noble motivation that one can have, especially after having gone through the kind of journey that you have gone through. David, before we come to the end of our conversation today, a fascinating story that you've told us, I want to ask you about your hopes for democracy globally. What is your message to people who live in the so-called free world? You know, when you watch the democracies that they're under come under attack and you know what you've come through, what would you say to them? Well, first of all, never, ever take democracy for granted. 
Venezuela used to be one of the most stable democracies in the region, one of the most prosperous economy in the region. We used to be a reference, not only in the region, but in the whole world for 40 years in a region that had plenty of dictatorships and civil wars, Venezuela was a democracy. And I think the generation that came before me, they took democracy for granted. And so my first advice to everyone is that you cannot take democracy for granted. You cannot take freedom for granted. You cannot take rule of law for granted, especially in moments where democracy is in danger. I think democracy is having one of its most darkest days since a lot of countries started to have this system. Is democracy perfect? It is not. But the solution to tackle democracy is not an authoritarian regime. Mm. It's not a brutal dictatorship that censors the press, mm. that jail the opposition, that controls your activities through the web, that collapse the economy. That's not the solution. I think the ones who have been victims of dictatorships need to get better organized. We need to be uh, stronger mm -hmm. and we need to make this a global uh, cause. You know, mm -hmm. we cannot stop and say, well, this is Venezuela, but I in my case in, in Belarus or I in my case in Zimbabwe or that. No, at the end of the day, we're victims of same systems that are dictatorships. Right. Right. So we need to fight. We cannot give up. Mm -hmm. I think we can beat them, really. And don't allow those dictators to break your mind. Mm. Once your mind is broken, everything is broken. Mm. Because if your mind is broken, you will not be able to take the best decisions. Mm. You will not be able to execute the best actions. You will not be able for the ones who are involved in politics, who are public servants, to live well. So don't allow them to break your mind. We have to be strong-minded. Sometimes if you need to take your time, take your time and then come back. But never ever allow them to break your mind because that's what they want. And they are cruel with that and they are brutal with that. David Smolansky, there could be no better messenger with that kind of encouragement that you have brought to us here today. And right here at the front lines of freedom, we want to wish you the best. We want to stand with you and to continue to encourage the peoples of our world to stand up for the right thing, to fight for the cause of justice and the cause of freedom. So, David, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Evan, once again for the invitation. One last thing, if the camera can be seen, this is a picture, a photograph of, the, of a Venezuelan beach. My favorite one. The one that I could say that I grew up where I used to walk when I was a child with my parents. And I always look at this picture every single day to visualize myself going back there, walking again on this end. And I will be there and you are, will you will be more than invited there as well. I love that as a way to end here today. David Smolansky says, I have a picture here of a beach I used to walk on, where I grew up. And every day I look at that picture. I look at that picture as a motivation to go back, as a motivation to remind me that it is possible to win. And I want to encourage you wherever you are listening, what is the picture you have of the possibility 
What is a picture that you look at every day and say, it may not be real today, but there is a place, there is a time in my life when that will be real. If not for me, but for my children and through my actions, it will come to pass. I love that about what David has shown us here today. Thank you so much for joining us and for listening to Frontlines of Freedom today. And as usual, share this with your friends and we'll catch you on the next episode. For now, bye-bye.